and welcome to the very first episode of Explained, the history podcast where we use yesterday to understand today. I'm your host, Izzy Moss, and I'm a social and cultural historian. Oh my gosh, I can't tell you how excited I am for today. This podcast is something that I've been thinking about and mulling over for a bit of a while now because like as a historian, it's always kind of really bothered me how little attention we seem to pay to history when we're discussing kind of current social issues, like on the news and like amongst friends and family. We talk about these issues in like a, like a bit of a vacuum, you know, like what exists now is kind of seen as like the entirety of the story. Sometimes we dip a little bit into the history, but even if we do, it's often like not very deep, you know. Maybe we look back like a decade or so if we're lucky, but I, I just don't think it's enough. So like, I don't know, these issues are just so complex and multifaceted and I just feel like you lose so much nuance when we do that. Like we almost are just skimming the surface, you know. I don't think you can properly understand an issue if you don't understand how we got to where we are today. The history of an issue, it, I just think it's so important because, you know, literally nothing happens in a vacuum. Everything is the product of everything that's come before it. I don't know if this all sounds too existential or not. Um, but like, I guess that's kind of just, that's where I'm at. And that's why this podcast is happening because, I don't know, we didn't just like wake up one day and have these big issues like racial inequality or climate change. Like that just doesn't make any sense. These issues are so much deeper and more complex than that. And that's kind of what I want to explore with this podcast. So yeah, I want to kind of give you the historical background to all these current social and cultural issues that, you know, everyone's talking about and we just, we might not understand as much as we'd like to, because hopefully we can all then be better informed and I guess then ultimately make better and more meaningful impact going forward when we're trying to tackle these issues. Um, But yeah, I'm really excited about it and I hope you guys are too. I think it's going to be really good. I've got lots of topics up my sleeve that I can't wait to talk to you all about. But if there is anything in particular that you'd like me to discuss, though, please just let me know. The easiest way is probably over on our Instagram. It's at explainedpod, but I'll tag it down in the episode description too. So make sure you go down there and have a look at that. Um, Oh, but just a bit of housekeeping before we do properly get into today's episode. Um, I just want to give you a bit of a rundown of how all these episodes are going to work. Basically, every episode, I'm going to start off by first giving like a bit of an overview of the uh, the issue, um, kind of just what people are talking about and what they're saying and just the state of the issue as of right now, basically, just to set the scene before we dive into the history. Um, sometimes when we look at the history, it's going to be a really wide time period. Other times it's going to narrow in on something really specific with the issue. I hope that all makes sense, though. I'm, I'm so excited. These issues, they just... They can be so big and overwhelming and I really don't want you to be scared off because I'm trying to do exactly the opposite. I want to make these big and confusing issues so much easier to understand and I think starting with their history is just a really good place to do that. Um, Yeah, so I guess without further ado, let's get into today's episode. So today I've got a really exciting topic to talk about. It's something that really hits home for me actually as a really career-focused woman in my mid-20s, and I think it might resonate with a lot of you listening too. So today we're going to be talking about gender roles, and yes, this is such a big topic. Like, you could easily make a whole podcast show just on this one issue, so we do have to narrow it down a bit. So today I'm going to look at more specifically the traditional gender roles that are ascribed to women in today's society, especially like the domestic expectations that are placed on women. I think it's going to be a really exciting episode, though, and I think you guys might be a bit shocked about how many of the things that you thought were historical that actually aren't. Yeah, we do love a bit of myth busting, don't we? (laughs) But um, but I I should note before we like properly get into this that we're only going to talk about gender roles 
as they appear in white Eurocentric society. In many different cultures across the world, these expectations and family systems can be really quite radically different and often are far more equal than we see here in like white Australia. Um, but yeah, just to flag that. Um, so yeah, we do have to narrow it down, unfortunately. But if you guys would be interested in maybe a part two or a part three, where we can look at some of these other aspects, maybe, I don't know, like looking at toxic masculinity or maybe First Nations gender roles, then please do let me know. Cause I would be very excited to do that as well. But I think, yes, that's probably more than enough from me in this introduction. So let's get properly into the show. Okay, so right now, if we were to think about gender roles, traditional gender roles and what they look like for women in today's society, I bet a lot of people would come back with a pretty similar answer. You know, it's that image of that very feminine and beautiful woman who stays at home cooking, cleaning and looking after the children while her husband is off working. You know, it's really domestic focused. Her place is in the home rather than being off working for money like her husband. But regardless of what you actually think about this traditional kind of role for women, it is this image that our society kind of raises up as the pinnacle of womanhood, like the ideal state of being a woman is being this domestic woman. There's even a trend right now. I don't know if you've actually heard of it. I mean, you might have. It's, it's kind of blowing up on social media called trad wives or like standing for traditional wife. It's this growing movement across the world where women sort of advocate for these traditional gender roles. Yeah, so on social media, so many of these women are showing their audience this kind of picture-perfect traditional housewife life that they lead, like, and while their husbands are off working. It's really interesting, but they're really leaning into these very traditional roles, what we would think of as very classical, feminine, and historical in that sense. This is obviously a more extreme example because in 2023, these traditional expectations are certainly not the reality for most women. With the cost of living rising and just the demands of the modern world, most women, regardless of if they're married or not, simply have to work to survive. And many just want to work, you know, it gives a sense of identity and purpose to them or they just enjoy it, like whatever the reason it might be. But it that doesn't change the fact that society still sort of holds this domestic woman as the ideal woman, the image of like perfect femininity. Anyone that goes against this trend is seen as non-traditional, bucking the system, going against the status quo, you know, and rejecting what we kind of expect of her as a woman. And society judges her, you know, we do. We tell her that she's not enough of a woman, that she's selfish. You, you only have to look to all the female public figures that we see right now, and you can see this all playing out in real time. Like, uh, look at Julia Gillard. It doesn't really matter what you think about her politics or her leadership, but during her time as prime minister between 2010 and 2013, the fact remains that she was absolutely ridiculed by the media and her fellow politicians for her supposed lack of femininity. Like she was attacked for having an empty fruit bowl in a photo shoot. It was apparently strange and unnatural for a woman to have an empty fruit bowl. Like how it sounds so ridiculous, but it's true and it happened. And yeah, she was unmarried and childless. And even if we don't want to admit it outright, it seems like Australia simply couldn't shake the feeling that there was something unnatural about the fact that a woman had chosen a life working in high profile politics over domesticity and child rearing. But these expectations are not only for public figures. For the average Australian woman, she likely feels these effects every single day too. A really key indicator of this is in the tangible differences in how men and women take on domestic labour. So a couple of researchers from the University of Technology here in Sydney published a really interesting study in 2022. They found that more than 75% of heterosexual couples divide household labor based on these so-called traditional gender roles. So, you know, it's the woman who's doing all the bulk of the household work. So the cooking, the cleaning, the shopping. And yeah, and while the statistic is shocking, it's unfortunately not particularly surprising. 
I'm sure a lot of us see this playing out in our real life every day, right? It's always mum that gets called when the kid's sick at school or mum who's expected to cook dinner every night, even if she's worked all day, or mum that's expected to organise and buy the Christmas and the birthday presents for everyone. But what I think is really interesting is that the research shows that these traditional gender roles seem to seep even into same-sex couples. In a 2016 study, researchers from the American Sociological Association found that most same-sex couples think that the quote-unquote more masculine presenting partner and the more feminine presenting partner should each be responsible for the stereotypically male and female roles in the household, respectively. They found 66% of people believe the more feminine partner should be responsible for the buying of the groceries, 61% felt that the more feminine partner should be the one to do the cooking, and 58 thought that this partner should be the one to clean the house and do the laundry. And even when it comes to raising children, 62% expected the more feminine partner to be the one that attends to the children's needs. You know, I was completely blown away by this research. The fact that these ideas are so entrenched in our minds that even when there actually isn't a gender difference within a couple, we can't help but still lean into these gendered norms and stereotypes. We rely rather on like a woman's appearance, her hobbies and jobs, or anything that might give us an indication if she fits into our feminine or our masculine box so that she can fulfill these expectations we place on her as a society. It's just absolutely baffling to me. But then, so I guess the question is, why do we do all this? Why do we have all these expectations? And the argument I hear again and again, and I'm sure you guys do as well, is that it's just tradition. It's the way it's always been. Women are just naturally better at being at home. And so that's how things have always been and that's how they should and will continue to be. You know, you hear people saying all the time, like, this is how society has always functioned. Women have always been in the home and men have always worked. You know, in other words, there's this almost unquestioned understanding in society that women have always been subjugated by men, that women have always been primarily located in the domestic sphere, and that women have always been responsible for raising children and domestic labor. You know, and most people don't even question this. It's... It's just taken as a fact from when we're children and we just use it then in our daily life as adults. But what if I told you that these apparently traditional gender roles are in fact a relatively recent historical development? Throughout history, overwhelmingly, most women have worked outside the home. Most women have had to work in order to survive or they simply wanted to. There is just absolutely no historical backing to support the idea that women have simply always been in the home. It's just nonsense. These ideas are only a product of the post-World War II years, you know, post-1945, and they have really little historical bearing before then. So I thought I'd take you through a little bit of a timeline just to unpack this here. Let's start by going all the way back to hunter-gatherer societies. You know, we're talking like 10,000 years ago when all humans lived a very nomadic life, you know, moving around seasonally and hunting for their food. It's pretty consistent across all these societies that there was a very clear division of labor between the sexes. There were certain jobs that the men would do and certain jobs that the women would do. Women did all the gathering of the food while it was the men that did the hunting, you know, going out and killing the woolly mammoths, that sort of thing. So while there is a division between the type of work both the sexes are doing here, both men and women were expected to equally contribute to this work. There was no sense that women were just meant to be the ones to raise the children. These societies, they they simply wouldn't be able to function if women didn't do work outside the family unit. So then if we jump forward a little bit in our timeline again, so we're now 6,000 years ago, we see the rise of something called sedentary agriculture. This is the period that's often called by ancient historians as the agricultural revolution. And now bear with me, I know all this talk of agriculture might seem a little dry and boring, but I promise it's actually really important and interesting stuff. So 
Rather than nomadic life of hunter-gatherer societies, we now see the development of villages. So this is where groups of people are living permanently in houses now. This gave people the ability for the first time to grow crops and keep livestock because they're no longer moving. They're able to build more permanent forms of agriculture, essentially. And so quite naturally, with these new changes came changes in the division of labor between men and women. The most significant was because we could now keep heavy plows to actually plow the agricultural crops and also keep large domesticated livestock. Um, It was mainly men who took control of these new agricultural jobs because they learned quite quickly that it wasn't safe for pregnant women to do these kinds of heavy laborious tasks. But women still had an equally important role to play, though, in the economic success of the family and the community. Their main role was to produce children. Now, don't fall into the trap, though, of thinking that this sounds like kind of modern housewife expectations. There is a subtle nuance here that I think is really important to grasp. So producing children meant there was more people to work the fields, which meant more productivity, which eventually would mean more wealth. So women were not producing children because they were seen as economically unimportant, you know, only valuable in a household setting, like how the traditional gender narrative now kind of goes. It was it was quite the opposite, actually. They were producing children because it was critical to the economic success of their family unit and the agricultural work that they were producing. It, it was almost like the producing of children and the labor were two sides of the same coin, if that makes sense, both together working towards economic success. And then not much changed here for a good couple of thousands of years. Villages and towns just got bigger and the tools of agriculture just got more sophisticated. Even throughout the medieval period, though, so we're talking from the 5th century through to the 15th century now, This is basically the setup we see. This would only change when we get to the Industrial Revolution. So now we're talking about the mid-1700s here. This was arguably one of the most transformative times in human history. It was when the world moved from an agricultural society to one dominated by industry with factories and steam power and machines. The changes this brought to society more generally were massive. People flocked from rural villages into growing cities to look for work in these factories. And what this means for our story is that the economic production moved from the family to outside the home. So rather than it being the family and their own labor that produced money for the family, essentially, people now took up jobs with employers in these big cities. And so for women, this meant that their economic contribution was no longer tied to producing children to work the land. They now need to get jobs themselves to economically support their families. And so most women did. They went and got jobs. They took up jobs in domestic service, in factories, as seamstresses, in mills, and practically anything else. Like, the list goes on forever and ever. Some of the photos from this period are so fascinating. I'll, I'll upload some to the Instagram for you to have a look at. But, yeah, it's they're fantastic. There's just rows and rows of women working in these cramped factories. It, it's actually quite remarkable. And these women worked really hard, usually long, grueling hours. Like, we're talking 12 to 16-hour shifts. And typically they still got paid less than the men, even though they were working as long hours and as physically taxing jobs. So in about the mid 1850s, men working in factories and other industries are getting paid about 10 shillings per week. But at the same time, women also working in factories, they're getting paid only about half of this. It's also hard though to get an exact number of how many women did work at this time. Women were often left off of official employment lists and were often not listed as employed in the census. But economic historians do suspect that the vast majority of working class women did work at this time in some form of paid employment. But this certainly doesn't mean that women didn't also have to perform the household chores. They certainly did. But what's important for our story here is that they were expected to do both. That is paid employment and domestic labor. 
During this time, it was only ever elite women who did not work in paid employment. You know, the kinds of upper class women you see on shows like Downton Abbey. They were still expected, though, to do some form of work, but it was just in unpaid voluntary roles. So hospital work, charity work, that sort of thing. But even then, these elite women make up such a small section of society that this life was by no means the norm. What was the norm, and for most women from about the mid-1700s, is that they would go out and work to make money for the family. So far, I know this is just snippets from a huge period of time, but I hope you're starting to get the picture that throughout all of history, women have always worked. They have always been central to the economic success of their family. Very, very few women have ever simply been homemakers. It just hasn't been the historic norm. It was only after World War II that this would change. So, you know, after 1945. So during the war itself, between 1939 and 1945, the place of women was radically redefined. I'm sure this part of the story isn't that new to many of you. It's covered in a lot of pop culture. You know, there's so many movies and books written about this period. But I mean, rightly so. It's really fascinating. So basically what happened was when a lot of the men went off to war and here on the home front, there was a war effort to be supported. It was the women that stepped up. So women took on jobs typically held by men and they took up jobs that were now needed to support the war effort. So, you know, factory workers, munition workers, that sort of thing. I'm sure everyone's seen that really famous propaganda poster, you know, Rosie the Riveter. She's that woman in the denim jumpsuit with the red bandana. She's flexing her muscles and at the top, the caption reads, we can do it. It's it's such a famous image. I'd be surprised if you haven't seen it, but it'll be on the Instagram. So have a look if you haven't. But this image first appeared in 1942 in an effort to encourage American women to join the war effort. It's just such a masculine image, though, which is it's just so fascinating to compare to what will happen after the war. So keep that in the back of your mind. But the propaganda worked and women from all social classes flocked to take up these typically masculine jobs. Even upper class women who, as we've talked about, typically hadn't worked outside the home up until now. So in the US alone, 19 million women worked for wages. And 5 million of these women did so for the first time. And this was all great. Women had new employment opportunities. The war effort was supported. And that all seemed fine. Until, I guess, the war ended. So what did happen was when the men did start to return home and quite rightly wanted their jobs back, the women were quickly pushed out of these roles that they had held during the war and back into the home. So this came in part from a place of sheer practicality. As you can imagine, these men did need their jobs back. And the women had taken them up with the understanding that it would only be for the duration of the war but it was also so deeply ideological you really have to wrap your head around the idea that war is just this super hyper masculine thing you know it's kind of the epitome of masculinity in a way you have to get into the minds of these men for them to come from this really super masculine environment you know they're quite literally putting their lives on the line using weapons and their bodies to physically defend their country and then they're coming back into a world where women have taken over their jobs it it would have been quite jarring and i can imagine really quite emasculating so to try to compensate for this the expectations of women in this post-war world didn't simply go back to what they had been like before the war we actually went one step further to try and sort of overcompensate for the anxieties about these gender relations that had kind of cropped up after the war. So this image of the perfect domestic housewife was sort of invented at this point as the idealized woman. And it's really not that far off the gender roles we know too well today. So it's this sweet wife that stays at home. She cooks, she cleans, and she looks after the children while her husband is off at work. 
The idea was that if women lent really into this stereotypical femininity and stayed out of the working world, then it would give men the space to be these masculine figures that they so desperately were craving to be. This is also when the idea of the family wage appeared for the first time, when there's a sort of breadwinner father who works outside the home and earns enough money to support the entire family. And then there can be the homemaker wife who performs mother and wife duties at home, like the cooking, the cleaning, you know, all the things we've talked about. It was pretty much in these years immediately after the war that what we think of today as traditional gender roles was essentially invented. And they haven't changed much in the years since. So new phrases started being thrown around, like the war has destabilized what was natural. They were really trying to push the idea that these new domestic expectations for women were somehow natural to being a woman. Popular culture and advertising also played a really big role here. I'll post a few of these on the Instagram as well, but I'm sure you guys have seen them all before, but it's these beautiful, happy women working in the home as wives and mothers, and they're just really glorifying this new life of domesticity. You can see why it was so appealing. If I'm looking at these images, it looks pretty lovely. I can't lie. But I guess that was the point, right? That these new gender roles would be widely taken up if they could show how good it would be. And most women did. They stopped working and they opted to stay at home instead. So I, I guess it worked, right? And then once these new roles stuck, they never really went away. Even when women began to enter the workforce again in huge numbers from the 1970s, they were seen as transgressive. Although women had always worked, we had almost forgotten that by the 70s. These women were seen as going against traditional gender expectations, which ironically had only existed for less than a generation at this point. My grandma always talks about this. She was a high school teacher when she married my grandpa and started having kids in the late 60s. And I remember just being completely shocked when she told me how once she got married, she was made to resign every year and reapply for her job. She says that as a married woman, she just wasn't seen as a reliable member of staff anymore. In the eyes of the Department of Education, I guess she was a risky person to employ because she could get pregnant at any moment and leave to become a housewife. But even in 2023, as we've talked about, this sort of sentiment has kind of stuck around. So I guess then, what do we make of all this? Where do we go from here? I think the key takeaway here is that the gender roles and expectations placed on women today in 2023 are not as traditional as they claim to be. If the argument in favour of these gender roles is that they have always been this way and that women have always been born to do domestic labour and then thus they should continue to do this now and that we shouldn't change anything. If that's the argument, then it starts to crumble away when you realise that these gender roles are a fairly modern construction. There really isn't anything historic about them at all. It's quite the opposite, actually. What is historic, though, is that women have always worked that women have always contributed as equally to the economy as much as men have. So I guess this is then what I want you guys to think about. So the next time you see someone trying to shame a working mother, or you hear a man not wanting to take up his fair share of the domestic labour, or a woman is told she's too emotional to hold senior leadership positions, remember that these gender roles aren't based on anything other than some male anxiety some 70 odd years ago. Women have always been and will continue to be as capable as men. And I guess then on that note, that's probably enough from me. I have absolutely loved bringing you this first episode. I hope it's been helpful and I hope it's opened your mind to thinking about this issue from a new angle maybe that you haven't thought about before. If you did enjoy it, come and let us know over on Instagram or leave us a review. I can't wait to chat to you next week. Bye! 
This episode of Explained was recorded on the lands of the Darug people of the Eora Nation. We pay our deepest respects to the elders of these lands, both past and present, and extend that respect to all First Nations peoples listening today. At the centre of what we do here at Explained is the acknowledgement that history has been practised across these unceded lands since time immemorial, shared through storytelling, art, dance, song and ritual. We believe that no history can be truly representative without taking into consideration the contributions and sophistication of First Nations histories and their diverse methods of historical practice. We remember this as we tell these stories, continually striving to challenge and expand what we consider to be history here in Australia.